Well, this morning, if you would, as we begin our new study in the book of Mark, if you would, turn with me to the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 12, verse 25, through chapter 13, verse 14, and then we're going to skip over a couple of chapters to chapter 15, verse 36 through 41. So in this introduction to Mark, in one way, it's kind of personal, because Mark is also called John, so his name, John Mark, is my name. My parents gave me that name, and so it's always interesting to hear and study about the person John Mark in Scripture. We don't know much about him. In fact, there's very little about him that we know except his connection to Paul and Barnabas on missionary journeys. So here I think it's important for us as we seek to open the book of Mark probably over the next year or so that we look at the author God used to write this gospel. How did Mark know the details that he wrote in the gospel? There's a lot of details, even some details in Mark that aren't in the other gospels. Did he know Jesus personally? That is, when, he, when Jesus walked in his ministry on the earth, did he know Mark and did Mark know him? And what kind of man was Mark that God would inspire to write a gospel, the good news about Jesus? We're going to look at just some of the very few passages in Scripture that tell us about Mark and see what that Scripture tells us about that man and what it tells us about us. So if you would turn to Acts 12, the last verse, verse 25, I'll read through 13 and then we'll skip over to chapter 15. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So... Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salome, Salami, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and, when they had John, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. 
and then chapter 15, beginning at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. As we consider these portions of the Lord's word, let us turn to him briefly in prayer. Lord, as we consider your servants, particularly your servant Mark this morning, we pray that you would remind us we don't worship the servants, we worship the master. Father, we pray that the things thought of, said here, spoken about in conversation would be consistent with your own word for uplifting, building up, and training. And Lord, if they are not consistent with your word, that they would pass away and never be heard from again. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are lots of interesting people in Scripture. One of them, of course, way back in the days of Exodus, was Moses, who approached the burning bush. And when he approached the burning bush, God told him he was calling him to lead his people out of Israel. And here are the things that Moses said. First of all, he said, who am I? In other words, I'm nobody. You shouldn't send me. Then when God tried to tell him why he was the one, he said, what shall I say to the people? He was afraid that he wouldn't even know what to call God amongst the people of God. And God told him what to say. Then Moses said, they won't believe me. He was afraid of failure. God addressed that. And then he said, I am not eloquent. He wasn't a good speaker. God merely said, didn't I make your tongue, basically. And then the last thing Moses said is, please send someone else. Moses, one of the most important historical figures in the history of God's people, and yet he didn't think he was the man to go. We could look at all kinds of other people in Scripture in the same way. But the problem is, so often, we forget that God doesn't use people because they are the best or because they are the perfect person or because they won't fail or any of these things. In fact, he calls people who have anonymity, he calls people who are not eloquent but fail, and he calls people who need to be reconciled to others before they can be used in great service. You see, God is faithful despite the unfaithfulness of even his servants who write the scriptures, even his servants who prophesy to the people, even his servants who lead the people, we recognize, as we did through our series in the Psalms, of God's hesed, his faithfulness, that he will not let his people go despite his people's failure and their sin. Looking at John Mark, that somewhat anonymous figure when it comes to scripture, teaches us that God will use even the most ignoble men as useful instruments for his glory. 
In fact, we see three particular things I'm going to address this morning. God uses, first, anonymous men. Secondly, he uses men who fail. And third, he uses men who reconcile with others. First of all, a reminder of the little we know about Mark. In fact, we think that the first, perhaps, occurrence of this individual was not an axe, but may have been in Mark's own gospel when he was describing the days of Jesus' arrest and betrayal. Maybe I should say that the other way around, betrayal and arrest. And it says, Mark tells us, that there was a young man there in those circumstances when all this was going on who was dressed just in the, his, basically, his inner garments, we might say, and as the circumstances took place, this man ran away naked. We think that's probably Mark. This is the only place it occurs in the Gospels. He's the only one that describes this incident. And it doesn't give us the name of this young man, but we think that might be who it is. He's also a guy with two names. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, sometimes you have a guy with two, three, or more names. In fact, one of the candidates for replacing the apostle Judas Iscariot had three names. Well, here he has two names, John and Mark. He's known most places by Mark, but sometimes it says he's also called John, or John also called Mark. We also know from Scripture that he is from a believing home of prayer. Because earlier in Acts chapter 12, we have this story. Peter was imprisoned and was given a miraculous deliverance, and he walked out of prison by God's grace. Angels had rescued him, and when Peter went to the disciples, he knocked on the house of a place where they were praying. And we were told that it was the mother, chapter 12, verse 12, it was the mother of John whose other name was Mark. It was her house where many were gathered together and were praying. So he came from a believing home where they prayed together. We also know from scriptures that this individual was somewhat a sidekick to Peter. Peter mentions him in his epistle, and tradition tells us, of course tradition isn't scripture, we don't know how accurate this is, but tradition tells us that he accompanied Peter to Rome when he founded the church in Rome, and then Peter sent him off, actually, to Alexandria, Egypt, where Mark apparently founded that church in Egypt, now known as the Coptic Church. So we don't know a lot about him. In fact, historically, other than a few mentions in the epistles, he's absent from recorded history in Scripture after Acts 15. We know so little about him. Was he really the young man who ran away when Jesus was arrested? What was he doing in the house? Was he praying with the others when Peter was in jail? Did he really go off and found the church in Egypt? Was he really someone who was so gifted to be able to write the gospel with these details, or did he acquire this information, as so many think, from Peter himself as he spent time with him in Rome? What's well, interesting, God often uses anonymous men. 
In fact, when you read through scriptures, sometimes in the Old Testament you will see uh, perhaps a phrase that says, and a man of God came to prophesy or something like that. We never even know the guy's name. And so often we see that there are things going on through scripture where we don't even know a named individual or all the details, where they came from, what their situation was. And I think this is no mistake. I remember back in the 20th century, one of the great missionary stories of the day was Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. There have been movies named after them. These individuals went down to South America to try and reach some remote Indian tribes in that territory. And you know the story, if you know anything about mission work, is that these individuals went and they were flying an airplane to a remote area and they landed with hopes of having first contact with this remote tribe. And as they began to give them gifts or distribute things from the plane, they were all killed on the spot. Not only Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, but the other men who were with them. You know that this led to the situation where at least Jim Elliott's wife and family ministered to the very people who had killed her husband. She's written books. It was something that was an incredible story, even in the news media. But do you ever wonder who led Jim Elliott and Nate Saint to Christ? Do you know? I don't. I probably could if I read all the details of biographies and that kind of thing. But behind every Paul, there's an Ananias. Behind every missionary, there's someone who taught them the word of God. Perhaps their parents, perhaps a Sunday school teacher, perhaps someone that befriended them. Whoever it was, God uses anonymous people for the kingdom of God. And so when you think, perhaps sitting in your seat, well, God can't use me to advance the kingdom of God, I want you to remember he used a young man like Mark. He can use anyone to advance his kingdom. Not only anonymous men, but men who fail. Let's look a little bit at what takes place in Acts chapter 12 and 13. In Acts chapter 12, verse 25, we see Barnabas and Saul return from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, on the one hand, we understand from other places in Scripture, one reason they might have taken him is he was Barnabas's cousin. He was a relative. But on the other hand, they would have no interest in bringing John with them in their, in their ministry Unless he was useful. He had already gotten a reputation for having some value to be with them. We don't know what all that value may have been. Maybe at that point in time, he was, he was merely a, a gopher. You know, that guy on the construction sites that goes for all the tools. I did that one summer. I found out I didn't like heights when you had to go up on high buildings. But here, he's the... He's described as someone who has some value because they want to take him with him. In fact, Barnabas finds him so valuable, three times he wants to take John with him on journeys or trips. The other thing we find out is that he was sent with an organization or with an organized mission group that was spirit-inspired. 
chapter 13, verse 4 and 5, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Even though the Holy Spirit had set apart, apparently, verbally, Saul and Barnabas, yet John was with them, John Mark. And we're reminded that he was with them for spirit-inspired mission work. So he was a very important and valuable person on that mission. The other thing we find out is that he witnessed miracles. You saw this section in the middle here. Here they are in this island. It says, as far as Paphos, in fact, the island of Cyprus is the hometown of Barnabas. And because Mark is Barnabas' cousin, it could very well be Mark as well, maybe from Cyprus. And so here it is. They come across somebody who it looks like is coming to understand the word of God. This guy by the name of Elimus the Magician. He opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul was called... Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And look what happens. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Unknowingly, perhaps to Elimus, this situation caused faith in the proconsul. Sergius Paulus became a Christian upon that event. And as we look at these things, we think, wow, this is strange stuff. And a lot of the stuff in Acts is strange. It's miraculous. It's powerful. It's God's work to inspire and confirm the early church. But we forget sometimes there were witnesses. Mark was one of those. He witnessed miracles like this, some of which we probably don't even have recorded in our scriptures. And yet, despite witnessing miracles, despite seeing how, how wonderful it was to see people come to the Lord, despite the fact that all of this is taking place, showing the glory and power of God through Jesus Christ, we come to chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. And we realize something happened. Back in chapter 13, at the end of the place that I read, it said this, he left them. He abandoned the cause. He abandoned them. Imagine seeing miraculous work in the kingdom of God. Imagine seeing the charisma of Paul and Barnabas in a place where they were ministering the gospel, where for the first time people were coming to Christ. Imagine the excitement of an early church established in that place in Cyprus, perhaps even in his hometown. But when they get across the Mediterranean to Asia Minor, he goes home. He abandons the cause. And we get to this section in Acts, in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, this is after they have uh, come back 
They've had the presbytery meeting in Jerusalem because there's been a disagreement over whether or not everybody, even Gentiles, are saved by grace. And so they're reminded they're not saved by coming to the law and being circumcised and all of those other things. Paul and Barnabas were the delegation from Antioch to the church in Jerusalem as they made that theological decision. They come back from that particular presbytery meeting after their first missionary journey. And they come back and they bring, evidently, not only Silas and Judas, but evidently John Mark must have accompanied them as well. And it reminds us what takes place. Now Barnabas, this is verse 37, wanted to take with them John called Mark. Noble thing, they want to go back and visit the churches that were established on their first missionary journey. They wanted to know what was going on. They wanted to see the excitement. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In other words, here's Barnabas, always the optimist, always introducing workers to the other believers and seeing that they would be confirmed in their work. He was the one who was the great encourager. Barnabas is known as someone who encourages. And here's Paul, the intelligent and practical-minded missionary who says he failed the first time because he didn't stick with the group. I don't want him. I don't want that, that stress of wondering whether he's going to abandon us at any moment. And so Paul says, I don't want that. There arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. I can just see the argument going on. Barnabas giving all the reasons why they should take John Mark. Not only he's, he's my cousin, but he has all these skills and gifts. Here we can use him, even if he isn't there for the whole thing or wasn't last time. Still, he was useful. Look at what he did in Cyprus, after all. And I can see Paul saying, we don't need these distractions. We don't need somebody who might leave us at any moment. I can see all the arguments for either side. And instead of resolving it, Mark becomes a cause of division. There arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. We don't know what happened to Barnabas after this. In fact, this is the last thing we really hear about Mark in detail, although we hear both from Peter and Paul later on. In fact, we don't know whether this missionary journey by Barnabas and John Mark was successful or not. In fact, we get the indication that they were not commended by the brothers. In fact, they left perhaps in disgrace or without the support of the church. They went on their own, almost returning home, so to speak. That mean? Can God use somebody like Mark, who was a cause for division, who seemed to have value, was inspired by the Spirit's work, saw the miracles of God, and yet left them in the middle of the journey? I have to say, every pastor sometimes asks the question, at least they should legitimately ask the question, how can God use me? You can look back at the ministry of a pastor, and you can see places in his pastoral ministry where he failed. He failed 
perhaps, to say the truth in the right situation. He failed to minister to someone in a particular way that he knew he should have done. He failed to see the opportunity for work in a particular area. He fails again and again. Historically, John Calvin got fired from the pulpit in Geneva. John Knox served on a galley ship because he was put there by the Queen of Scotland. I know many, many pastors who were forced out of churches at some point in their ministry. And I know many others who left the ministry because of moral failure. But when we look at Scripture, think of the great icons of the faith. King David, need I say more about his failure. Peter, the one who betrayed Jesus. Moses, the one who said to God, I'm not your guy. And when the hard times came and he grew in anger against his people, he struck the rock in such a way that God said, you will not enter the promised land with the people. They all failed at one time or another. Peter failed. Peter, even before Paul, together, Paul saying to his face, you're wrong theologically, you're wrong in your practice. He was able to say to his face in the presence of the whole church, Peter, you're failing in this particular instance. You see, we will fail. I don't like failing. I don't know that you guys like failing. But we're going to fail because we're not the Savior. But God can use even failing people because God is more powerful than our sin. And God uses men to reconcile with one another. Here is this man, John Mark. We think he wrote the gospel. We think he founded the church in Alexandria, Egypt. We think he had great influence in the early church. And yet we don't really know some of these details for sure. But we do know that a couple of the other occurrences in Scripture of this man, one of them is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Here's what Peter writes. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. This is after the missionary journey. We think this is probably maybe around 60 A.D. or so. We don't know exactly when these uh, letters were written. She is at Babylon. I think this is a reference to Rome. Uh, uh, basically, symbolically, the, the, the place of wickedness and perversity, the central and capital of the territory that Rome takes place or that, that Rome covers here. And he says... On the one hand, she was at Babylon. It could be a person. It could be the church itself, the sending greetings. But he also says, so does Mark. And notice how he describes him. My son. Now, I don't think that Peter was, uh, you know, the cousin once removed from Barnabas. I don't think he's meaning on a literal sense here that John Mark is his son. We know what this means. 
we mean that he considers Mark so useful. He considers him such an important figure in his life. It's like a father-son relationship, a son in the faith. So on the one hand, we see here that he's been reconciled to the church, at least. After he's gone and he's abandoned the cause and caused division amongst the two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, he's gone off to Cyprus, he pops back up in church history in this place. Again, tradition tells us he may have spent as much as a decade with Peter in Rome. But now he has shown his value, hasn't he? But perhaps more amazingly, the guy who said, I don't want Mark to go with us, the guy who said, I don't want somebody who abandoned the cause on a missionary journey ever again. Paul says these things. Look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. It says here, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. The guy that Paul didn't want with him anymore. By the time Colossians is written, towards the end, we think of Paul's life, while he's in prison, he now writes this letter to the church in Colossae to say that now this man is a comfort to him. He is one of the few fellow Jewish believers who are there with him as he's under house arrest, and now he's a source of comfort commended by Paul. Philemon says much the same thing. Philemon 24 says that he is now a fellow worker. Hear these words from that book. It says here, And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. But perhaps the most amazing thing of all of these is when we turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Paul at one time thought this man was useless, didn't he? I don't want him anymore. I can think of times when I have thought I was not wanted anymore. It's not fun. Someone who's a burden to the rest of the group. I can think of times when I've not wanted other people anymore for various reasons. But here, he's gone from being useless to useful. I got to thinking. I go to General Assembly every year, our denominational meeting. And as I go across General Assembly, I'm not a big network person. I don't go looking for uh, individuals to get, uh, to get known or to get uh, notoriety or other things. And, and as I go through, I, I realize I know a lot of these guys. And it's interesting, I, I, I go and I, I look at those I have befriended over the years, and there's always one guy who's up, and, and he's one of the recorders at General Assembly. He was a pastor that helped me early in my ministry, and I always make sure, and I go up to him. He's retired now. His hands are shaking. And I go up, and I say to him, how are you doing? And then I go up, and I go to, to, to contact a few other individuals that I do every year, and then anyone I might run across. But you know some of the most interesting conversations I have? 
are those I disagreed with at one time. This particular General Assembly, I can remember one individual coming to me. I couldn't, I couldn't stand him in Presbyterian. I didn't agree with him. I didn't like the way he spoke. I didn't like his positions on different theological topics. I didn't understand his particular ministry. But I had a pleasant conversation with him. This man I disagreed with, I could say, how are you doing? How are things at your church? What do you think about the things that have transpired in your church and community? And we had a pleasant conversation. You see, to be useful for ministry is also to be willing to reconcile with those you have differences with. It's not to compromise the truth. It's not to stand in such a way that we're wishy-washy on the things of the Word of God, but no, it's a way to understand that there is someone above us that is more important than our petty differences. To be useful for ministry, God desires to see us model Jesus Christ in the church. The ministry he has is a ministry of reconciliation. What do we learn about John Mark in studying these various scriptures that say things about him? This is, this is not my usual sermon. I like more to focus on a particular text and just look at that text and tell us what God says. But looking at this story of the life of John Mark, I come to this conclusion. God can use you in tremendous ways without name recognition. We like to drop names. We like to say, I know this guy, I know that guy, I cite this guy, I cite this guy, I look and I see all these things, and look at all these fabulous people I've known or been in contact with or been a part of or all those things. But by and large, God uses anonymous men, women, and children. In fact, Scripture tells us that he will use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God can use you in tremendous ways, not only without name recognition, he can use you despite your failures. How many times have you heard someone say, I can't come to church, I'm too sinful. This is exactly where they need to be. Joining all the other very sinful people that enter the doors. Not one of us is without sin. And God can use you despite your failures, even if you failed in spectacular ways. If you turn from your sin and trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, God can not only save you, but he can use you as an instrument to help and save others. And finally, God can use you through the transforming work of the cross. What is it that made, that made John Mark go from being useless to useful? I don't think it was John Mark's ability, John Mark's courage, John Mark's theological tenacity. I think it was that God used him and matured him and grew him in the faith so that when push came to shove, the people of God knew his gifts were there to build up and encourage the church. God can use you. Don't think that he can't. He's not going to use everybody the same way. Not everybody's going to be a preacher. Not everybody's going to be a Bible school decorator. Not everybody's going to be all the things that are in a church. But that's why he puts us together. 
God uses us as his instruments to advance his kingdom for his glory. Here's Mark. This guy, we think, ran away naked when Jesus was betrayed, and he ended up writing the Gospel of Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit. What a glorious God we serve. Let's pray. Father, some of us here this morning may think that God could not possibly use them. Maybe their, their life story is a mess. Maybe they, they've recognized some failures. Maybe they fear that they don't have the, the recognition of others to be used of you. But Lord, remind us that you can use anybody. That you can use a pagan King Cyrus as your instrument to bring your people back to Jerusalem. Then you can use us even to show one person the wondrous word of God. That by your spirit can convict them and transform them and save them from their sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name.